and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Brookings Institution Senior Fellow Ben Wittes interviews Edward Epstein about his new book, How America Lost Its Secrets. It was recorded on February 1st, 2017. Welcome back to those of you who have... uh become regulars at, at these events. Um, it's good to see a lot of familiar faces. And welcome uh, to those of you who've never been to one before. Uh, these events, uh, Jack and I try to, uh, we find the authors of important and controversial new uh, books in national security. And we uh, do a live interview with them. And, and I'm pleased to have Edward J. Epstein here uh, who has certainly generated a lot of controversy uh, with his new book about Edward Snowden. Uh, so let's dive right into it. Um, welcome. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. I want to start um, with a big, broad question uh, that we, uh, I think we all sort of thought we knew the answer to, and I think part of the point of your book is that maybe we don't, uh, which is, who is Edward Snowden? And who is Edward Snowden really? Uh, and there are points in this book where you uh, really articulate the thesis that he is uh, likely was working as an agent of, of either Russia or China. And there are points in this book where you seem to take at face value his uh, claim that he was uh, a whistleblower outraged by uh, US intelligence policy. And so I want to start just by asking you to lay out uh, as, as authoritatively as you can, in your view, how should we understand who this person is? Well, I think the answer is both. When I began the book, as I've written about espionage a great deal in the past, uh, I started with the idea, here, Russia, since the NSA was created in 1952, has been trying to defeat its dominance of um, communications intelligence, which it has been, by espionage. Okay, it's all fair in the intelligence war, but it had been unsuccessful in getting at the NSA's sources and methods up until Snowden. So I started with the thesis that, or with the idea that Snowden could very well have been someone they infiltrated in. As a, when you proceed with an investigation, you sometimes, you know, there are sort of a nasty gang of facts that mug you along the way. And I began to see his emails with Laura Poitras while he was still at the NSA. And in these emails, he was setting up appointments. And, and I thought, it's not conceivable to me that any intelligence service would allow an agent of theirs to communicate with the press. So then I began saying, well, that thesis probably isn't right. So I began thinking, well, maybe he started out just as he said, as a disgruntled employee. He was certainly disgruntled. He certainly thought he was smarter than everyone else. And many <clears throat> spies start out as disgruntled employees. and. Um, then, of course, somehow he was encouraged to take this data, or maybe he did it on his own. 
a huge amount of data, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get to. And uh, he went to Hong Kong. Once he got to Hong Kong, I have no doubt that the Russians took him over. Uh, Putin, who's my source, Vladimir Putin, said, I have to say in a television interview on September 2nd, 2013, that in Hong Kong, Snowden had contacted Russian diplomats. And that only after the diplomats reported to him through channels did he authorize Snowden to come to Russia. So you instantly have the hands of the Russians. The fact he was allowed on a Russian airplane, uh, the fact that he was allowed in Russia without a visa, with a transit zone, whatever. You know, all thought, I thought that it's much more plausible, uh, as is the case of many people who wind up being espionage sources, that he started for one reason and wound up doing things for another reason. Okay. So, as you know better than I do, the defenders of Edward Snowden are passionately committed to the idea that his story should be understood as he tells it at face value. That is, he is somebody who uh, went to uh, uh, Hong Kong, waited in a hotel in order to talk to journalists. The journalists showed up. They, they talked. He gave them material. He's never given it to anybody else. He got on a plane intending to go to Latin America, got stuck in Moscow airport, never intending to stay in Moscow, and, um, and ends up in Moscow because his visa, was, his, his passport was revoked, and he ended up uh, stuck there, and Vladimir Putin let him stay, and he's never never been uh, an agent of the Russians. How much of this story are you certain is not true? Well, me... And how much of this story are, are, are we in, uh, uh, are you doubtful of? And how much of this story do you accept? Well, you know, in my career, there's been one central issue. How do assertions with no verification become established as conventional knowledge. I did this with the Black Panthers. I did this in the case of um, television news. I did this in the diamond business. So I like to look at things that are conventional wisdom. But nothing has prepared me for what you just described. And that is the uncritical acceptance from a single self-interested source, Snowden, who's the perpetrator of the largest theft of intelligence history, making matters worse, he's in Russia under the control of the Russian government. He made a pit stop, as you said, in Hong Kong, where he basically had a disclosure. He dis planned, well-crafted. He disclosed exactly what you said to these journalists. Uh, and then he flew to Russia. If we just look at the facts and not the words, which I like to do, the whole story could be summed up in a single sentence. A intelligence worker steals se uh, secrets of great importance and goes to Russia, which gives him sanctuary. That would be a single sentence. Um, well, but wait a minute. That, uh, let, me, let me stop you there. That would be a single sentence, but it would be a single sentence that gets to, that misses an important part of the story if you're, 
if you're thinking of it in a sort of John le Carré spy context, which is uh, intelligence officer steals a lot of secrets, goes to Russia, and along the way calls the press and gives it stuff to them first. That's a weird behavior on the part of, uh, of a spy. I'm not arguing, but I, just out of interest, there were three other defectors from the NSA who went to Russia. Uh, Mitchell, uh, Hamilton, and Martin. Okay, Martin and Mitchell. We're talking about ancient days, you know, beginning of the Cold War, 60s. When they got there, they all had a press conference. In the press conference, they all denounced, they all said they were whistleblowers, Martin and Mitchell, denounced the NSA's uh, intrusion into allied space and said that it could start a nuclear war. So it's not unheard of that there's a disclosure that goes with an espionage operation. I don't think this is an espionage operation, but it does happen. If he had flown straight to Moscow, and Glenn Greenwald and Lord Poitras went to Moscow and met him there, and he said exactly what he said now, would anyone have believed him? I don't know. But Getting back to your original question, yes, it's very odd to have someone go to Hong Kong and disclose things to the press, which is, as I said earlier, one of the things that convinced me that he wasn't under Russian control by the time he went. On the other hand, it is a scandal that the press would uncritically accept what a perpetrator would say. You mentioned correctly that he said, he was on his way to Latin America, which is the opposite direction in Hawaii. You go Miami and, you know, if you fly to Hong Kong, you're not going to get to Latin America. But forgetting that, you know, that's unverifiable. That's in his head. Maybe he made a mistake. But no, no, I'm not joking. But, you know, who knows what was in his head. But his passport was revoked on June 22nd. Anyone can find that out by going to the State Department. They have the logs. The State Department, uh, they actually had unsealed the complaint against him on the 21st, and they didn't want him to fly to Russia. Obama did not want this guy with a head full of secrets and God knows how many documents to go to Russia. So it made perfect sense. The State Department asked its um, consul general in Hong Kong to go to uh, the Chinese, or pardon me, the Hong Kong authorities and make sure they knew the passport was revoked. And the consul general sent a message back to the desk office of the State Department saying, yes, he, he has made sure that the Hong Kong authorities know it. So his passport was revoked the day before, and he had no visa. Now, I only think this is important because it wasn't that he got trapped in Russia. He went to Russia. And I'll say something else, you know, he was trained in the CIA. He would have known that if you go to Russia with a head full of secrets, forgetting documents, just a head full of secrets, the Russians, not, and there's no flight to Ecuador, by the way, from Moscow. There's a flight the next morning to Cuba and then a connecting flight. So if you're going to spend overnight in Russia, after advertising in Hong Kong, saying that you have secrets, what he said in Hong Kong is, I purposely took the job at Booz Allen because they had lists of computers around the world that the NSA has penetrated, which would be the number one thing that Russian intelligence would want to know. What computers have they penetrated? Once you say that, the Russians aren't going to say, oh, you have a proper 
visa go on to Ecuador. Yeah. Or at least it's a concern. Maybe they would. But he, when he went to Russia, I believe there's no reason to doubt that he was going to not get out of Russia. And uh, I don't see any reason to start off with his story and, and then say, well, he says this. Uh, why? How can you prove he's wrong in his intentions? He might have, I have to admit, he might have, you know, he might have been convinced by people around him. Um, Julian Assange was his, one of his main advisors, and Julian Assange sent his assistant, Sarah Harrison, uh, to Hong Kong to escort him to Moscow and uh, set up a whole series of decoy flights. You know, and he might have really thought, Sarah Harrison might have said, don't worry, we are going to Ecuador. I don't know what was in his mind, but I said, I'm just saying that anyone who goes to Russia with communications intelligence secrets of enormous value is endangering those secrets. Okay, so let's work backwards. It sounds like you're describing, and the book certainly describes, an escalating probability uh, that he was recruited uh, which you describe in, in the book as quite minimal early on, and, and the early chapters of the book are credulous that he is more or less what he describes himself to be, which is a, you know, a guy with fantasies of being a super spy, uh, uh, super agent, uh, who doesn't like the bureaucracies that he's working with and isn't doing as well professionally as he thinks he should be, starts stealing secrets because he doesn't like the government. Um, gets to Hong Kong and you have a lengthy discussion of a, 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 a group of missing days when he's there and uh, a, a, a fair bit of speculation that this could be the period in which he's recruited. And then goes to Russia and you're quite confident that he is giving information at that point. And so my question is, Working backwards, how confident are you today that he has a relationship with Russian intelligence? How confident are you when he was in Hong Kong that he's working with a foreign intelligence agency? And how confident are you earlier in his career that he's working with a foreign intelligence okay. agency? Let's go backwards, as you say. Let's start out, how confident am I that he has a relation with Russian intelligence? And, and not just a relation, but a relationship that is, uh, you know, one of espionage and giving secrets to them that, he, that goes beyond what he's okay. given to the public. Okay, there are four pieces of evidence that fit together. The one I mentioned, where Putin said he met with Russians Russian diplomats in Hong Kong. Okay, I've already mentioned that. Secondly, when he got to Russia, he was given a, a lawyer who was also on the oversight committee of the FSB named Anatoly Kucherina. And by the way, I was the only journalist, at least the only American journalist ever to interview Kucherina. Oliver Stone maybe interviewed him, but he was not a journalist. Any case, Kucherina, um, acted as the intermediary for Snowden. That, that, that's not uh, incriminating in any way. But Kucherita went on television uh, 10 weeks after Snowden had arrived in Russia, and uh, he was discussing what Snowden had given to a journalist in Hong Kong. And he pointed out to the interviewer 
Sophie Shepard-Nazi, he said, oh, he only transferred some of his material to the journalist. She naturally asked him, she said, you mean he has undisclosed material here in Moscow? Uh, she was rather taken back. And he said, certainly. So we have second piece, Snowden's own intermediary saying he brought material to Moscow. Uh, thirdly, <clears throat> we have uh, a deputy head of the uh, Duma, Parliament, Russian parliament, committee that oversees, whatever that means, uh, military and intelligence affairs. It's uh, Franz Klinstevich. And he says, on NPR of all places, but he says in an interview, they ask him, did uh, Snowden sh share information with the Russians? And he said, let's be frank. Certainly he shared his information and then added, that's what intelligence services do. Okay, I, all those statements can be taken ambiguously in one way or another. But the fourth piece of evidence I take very seriously, and that's the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. They declassified the report on December 22nd, 2016. In other words, you know, six weeks ago. And um, in the report, which is based, it's not a report, they spent 20, five months on a report, but it's a report based on um, the, US, the intelligence community. They don't have any independent ways. So it's the consensus of the intelligence community that they report. They report that since arriving in Moscow, Snowden has been in contact with the Russian intelligence service and continues to be. Now, it always puzzles me that journalists that are willing to embrace the idea uh, that the intelligence community uh, is absolutely right when it comes to Russian hacking, uh, are willing to reject the same findings when it comes to Snowden. And yet, there is no evidence whatsoever in this. And I should add, the intelligence committee report was signed not only by all the Republicans, but by all the Democrats on the committee, uh, unanimously, and uh, everyone in the House has supported this report. So I think we have to take that seriously. So when you take, he's in contact with Russian intelligence. He certainly has secrets in his head because he says he has, or at least they would try to find out if he has. Uh, his lawyer says he brought material to Russia that hasn't been disclosed. A member of parliament says he shared them with Russia. And uh, Putin basically uh, evaluated what he had told the Russian diplomats and then decided to bring to Russia. I can't see too much possibility that they would say, you know, he's an honest young man and uh, he has his civil liberties. And so we're just going to pay for him and put him in a hotel and not question him. So I think he had to have a relation with Russian intelligence. Okay, so that's only one of the. No, no, no. That's, all, that's all I want, but I want to flesh out the one okay. before we before we move right. backward in time. Right. So, so it sounds like you have very high confidence that he has a relationship with Russian intelligence now, with with which I agree with you, by the way. Um, uh, how confident, and th on this point, I confess I'm much less confident. I'm interested in your view. 
How confident are you that that relationship includes the delivery of material other than the, the, the large volume of material that he's made public? That is, you know, he says he's only given it to journalists. I have no doubt that Russian intelligence has gotten access to that material. Um, but I don't have any particular reason to believe that he's given Russian intelligence anything that he hasn't given to Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras and Bart Gelman. And so my question is, okay, is it is that he's a spy for the Russians or is that he is that he's a thief of a large volume of material? He made it available to a bunch of journalists and the Russians probably also got it as I suspected the Chinese and some others, um, but that the relationship is that is is not a relationship of further espionage, but simply a relationship of uh, you know that they got what everybody else got. Okay, I think the first on on my way back, the first thing I have to address is how much data he took. I mean, mm -hmm. you've. As you say, the story is he gave everything to journalists while in Hong Kong. On a thumb drive, he gave it two thumb drives, one to Glenn Greenwald and the other to Laura Poitras. Somehow Glenn Greenwald screwed up his thumb drive and Laura Poitras made a copy of hers. This is all in her book and Glenn Greenwald's book. And sent it by courier from Berlin where she's based to Rio de Janeiro where he's based. Plane went through Heathrow, and the courier was detained. And British intelligence did what they do, and they that the password was written right with the uh, thumb drive. They basically made a copy of it for the NSA. So we know something about that. There were fifty-eight thousand, couple hundred documents on the thumb drive. So that's what he gave to journalists. Okay, maybe a few thousand more to some to Glenn Green, upon me, to Bart Gelman, but you know, that's that's seems to me the universe. Now, how many did he take? The House Committee says in its report three times that he removed 1.5 million documents, which it would be uh, 58,000 would be 4%. Okay? Of these documents, it doesn't say he touched them. It doesn't say he sorted through them. It says he removed them. Now we're talking about digital copies being removed, which is a problem in and of itself. How does anyone know? I mean, they know because that's what they read in the damage assessment reports by the Department of Defense and the um, NSA. But how does the NSA or the Department of Defense know? I wondered about that. Everyone wondered about that. Turns out that Snowden, in the job he took, had what they call a thin computer. It's not really a computer, it's a workstation that has no ports on it and no way of storing information. Everyone at that facility called the Crypto Center had that for a very simple reason. They didn't want them stealing information. So Snowden found a way of transferring the data by first posting it somehow on a server at the NSA, on the directory, then according to the House Committee, although I'm not quite sure I buy this, rushing over uh, 20 minutes away to where he formerly worked, the Cunha base, where he had a thick computer, one with ports, and there he downloaded it, okay? 
So what they were able to trace is that files being breached, and they have the logs of what was being breached, then being put on the server, then being deleted from the server, and then being going on to the other computer. So that's how they come to the 1.5 million documents. Okay, so now we have a mystery. We know 58,000 documents went to journalists. We have no idea what happened to the rest of the journalists. He could have destroyed them. He could have uh, wiped them. He could have made an error. We don't really know. We don't know the Russians got them. But there's something very important here. Once documents, and these are SCI documents, leave the NSA, the secure facility, they are compromised, period. The NSA has to assume they cannot use the sources and methods in them again because if Putin had authorized them to come to Russia, to bring to Russia, or if they'd been in, intercepted in Hong Kong, you can't be, just like I can't be sure that the Russians got the material, no one could be sure they didn't, or the Chinese didn't. So they compromised. The um, 900,000 of the documents were Department of Defense documents, not NSA documents, having to do with the Cyber Command. Um, the uh, Department of Defense assigned between 200 and 250 intelligence officers who worked in shifts around the clock, basically unplugging the channels, the sources, rolling up the networks, whatever you do, that had been compromised. So the damage doesn't depend on certainty that the Russians took the information. It depends on the fact that he committed the crime of stealing information and taking and removing it. That, that, uh, so, so, it's, it's, so it sounds like you're more confident that there was damage associated with the document theft than, and, and that there is a relationship with Russian intelligence than you are confident that the, the, that the difference between the 58,000 documents and the 1.5 million documents that he uh, purloined or touched or uh, removed or, you know, which, depending on, uh, actually made it to Russian intelligence. Is that fair? Well, there's two things. There's the documents he removed, and there's the information in his head. Uh, one KGB officer who I interviewed was the case officer of an NSA employee, civilian employee called Ronald Pelton, who quit the NSA, took no documents with him whatsoever, went in the liquor business, lost money, and stupidly walked into the Soviet embassy and, and saw this agent called Victor, this officer called Victor. And Victor had to make a decision. And the decision was, we know the FBI has photographed him coming in. We don't know, we know he doesn't have anything, but what might, he says he remembers things. What do we do? They sh shipped him or they snuck him out of the embassy, fl flew him to Vienna, pu put him in the Soviet residency in, in Vienna, flew in a GRU team who spent uh, two weeks, it was actually a second trip to Vienna for him, and they wound up getting a program that the CIA and NSA had called Ivy Bells to tap into submarine cables. So the information in your head can be as valuable as documents. Snowden said over and over again, he said to James Risen of the New York Times, he, sa he said, I have information that if I wanted to reveal it, would basically make the NSA go dark. He was saying this in defense. He was saying, look, I haven't revealed anything because if I did, you would see the NSA going dark all over. 
So once you tell the Russians you have information in your head, even if you're lying, I would assume they would take every cell out of your brain if they had to until they got that information or found out you were lying. So I'm, I don't really, you know, I, I agree with what you say. You're absolutely right in characterizing that I don't know what happened to the 1,440,000 documents he disclosed. One of the problems in espionage at all or secret intelligence is, especially in the digital age, is you don't know where things have gone. But I am confident that he established a relation with the Russians after he got to Moscow. That, that's okay, so to summarize the Moscow phase, we are confident that he has a relationship um, with Russian intelligence. We are concerned that the marginal difference between the 58,000 documents and the 1.5 million documents may well have ended up in the hands of the Russians. And we are concerned that the contents of his head um, may also. Right. I think that's fair. Okay. Let's talk about China. So it is a weird fact about Edward Snowden that uh, he went to Hong Kong instead of a place without an extradition treaty with, with the United States. Um, how confident are you that his relationship with the Russian or any other foreign intelligence service began when he was in, in Hong Kong? And what uh, evidence is there for that proposition to whatever extent uh, you, you, you harbor that suspicion? I'm not confident it began in Hong Kong. I don't think it could have began any later than Moscow, but I think... But well, what, so Moscow hasn't ended yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, you know, people can be dupes, and intelligence services can be very careful when they're sort of trying to reel someone in, not even to expose themselves or work under a cover or false flag, pretending to be WikiLeaks or something else. So I, you know, when I am, when you bring up the Chinese, which I think is very important, you bring up this strange fact that Snowden knows he's going to steal these documents. He's made a lot of plans, in that, including communicating with Laura Poitras, you know, before he even took this job. He took this job, as he says, specifically to steal sources and methods of the NSA. Specifically. I mean, that's what he says. Okay. So we, uh, he was planning this whole thing even planning his excuse of epilepsy and everything else, even planning for his parents to come and visit him the night he was leaving. It wasn't accidental. So why, if he wanted to go to Latin America, and believe me, I wouldn't want to go to Latin America, but if he wanted to go to Latin America, well, you wouldn't be very safe there, but if he wanted to go to Latin America, as he says, why wouldn't he fly to, say, Brazil, which has a, doesn't have an extradition treaty with the United States and where Glenn Greenwald lives because Glenn Greenwald was very hesitant to flying about as far from Rio de Janeiro as you can get, which is Hong Kong, which is about almost a three-day flight. And why didn't he go there? I'm getting to your question. Uh, Bart Gelman, who is also in contact with Washington Post reporter, said that he couldn't go to Hong Kong because Hong Kong's part of China. It's a self-governing region of China, 
And uh, Washington Post wouldn't allow him to accept secret documents in an adversary nation. So it made great sense for him to have gone to Venezuela, Cuba, Ecuador, whatever he, Brazil. Also nice climate. But he went to Hong Kong. So we have to think he had some reason to go to Hong Kong. Uh, some, some reason not to go to South America, but go to Hong Kong. Of course, Hong Kong is run by China. Uh, national security, according to the uh, treaty with Britain, uh, one nation, two governing systems, that treaty, the national security affairs are in the hands of China. China has the absolute power to reject any extradition request. Hong Kong has an extradition agreement with America. But it says right in agreement, China, for any reason whatsoever, it doesn't have to give a reason, could reject any extradition. So it would make sense that in going to Hong Kong, he was going to expose his data to China. Uh, you know, that makes more sense than anything else, because that's... Now, China at that time was having a summit meeting with Obama in California. Maybe they didn't want to take credit for this. Uh, Maybe they were getting too much heat anyhow. But China and Russia have, since 1996, an intelligence sharing agreement, major agreement. Uh, so if China got the information or Russia got the information, again, a prudent person would have to, at least an American intelligence, would have to assume both allies had it. Just as if America got something, you would assume the other countries in the Five Eye Alliance also would get it, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Britain. So um, I, 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 I myself think that maybe he did go to Hong Kong because he thought maybe he was misled into thinking that he would have uh, some sort of glorified entry into China and China rejected it. But it seems to me that, we, that it can't be just a coincidence that you fly to two adversary nations, China and then Russia, uh, in your efforts to get to South America. So there's a lot of maybes in there, and, and it sounds to me like you're much, much less confident of what happened while he was in Hong Kong and what he was doing in Hong Kong than you are about uh, post-landing in Moscow. Is that fair? That's very fair. One of the things I found out when I went to <laughs> Hong Kong, which was where I started my book, basically, is I stayed in his hotel uh, in a room very close to his so I could get in touch with the service personnel for his room for the t time period that he stayed there. And um, I did manage to get access to the hotel records. And it showed very clearly that he checked in June 1st. Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald arrived June 2nd, so he checked in a day. He arrived in Hong Kong June, uh, me, uh, May 20th. If I said June, I meant May, but checked in the hotel June 1st. So there are 11 missing days. I tried as hard as I could. I went to Hong Kong police, the U.S. Embassy. No one knew where he was for those 11 days. He might have been staying with a friend. I, I don't want to make it sound overly sinister, but when Putin adds that he, he was meeting with Russian diplomats, we know he probably wasn't meeting with Russian diplomats while he was seeing Poitras and Greenwald. And after that, according to his Hong Kong lawyer, he was being shuffled around to refugee houses. Well, he might have. He can't exclude it. But it seems to me that something happened in those first 11 days. And you're absolutely right. 
I do not know what. All right. Let's go back to now he's living in Hawaii. He's stealing documents. He's clearly stealing documents. He's doing something that's not legal. How confident are you, if at all, that this is the point of recruitment? Or do you, at this point, do you basically believe he's whistleblower source? I'm reasonably confident that he wasn't consciously recruited in Hawaii. But I, again, I went to Hawaii, and one of the things I found is he staged what he called crypto parties. Well, he didn't call them. I never heard of a crypto party, but it turns out it's a little like a Tupperware party, where you invite people to a, a location, usually a counterculture location, and they bring their computers, and you show them how to install software called TOR, the onion router, which basically erases the identity of the sender, so it disappears in a chain of computers. And it, it, I spoke to the people at the, uh, where the crypto party was held, the, the fish cake, as it was called, and, um, you know, they said about half the people there were from the NSA. So there seemed to me to be a culture at the NSA. This is an anti-NSA surveillance culture, among the civilians, they didn't like the NSA. Why should they? I mean, they've just come from a world of hacking, and they don't like the idea of the NSA intruding and doing everything. Many people don't. And so they went and actually went to Snowden's party. Snowden was the host. He wasn't just a member. It was another woman called Runa Sandvik who came all the way from Washington. She was one of the main movers in this whole uh, anti-surveillance movement. And they, they presented the things together. And then it turned out that Snowden, Runa Sandvik said this, ha she found out, she didn't realize, was running the main TOR, TOR server, in Hawaii. So he was a part of this whole thing. I, should, I didn't give you the date. It was December two, 2012. And he started writing her in November. So well before he ever contacted Poitras or Greenwald or anyone, he was already in a culture that was against NSA surveillance. He was a libertarian. He gave money to Ron Paul. And uh, so I think he might have very well began taking information not as a member of a, as an agent for a secret service, but to give him a sense of power. Uh, recently, another Booz Allen empl civilian employee, the NSA, uh, called Thomas Martin, was arrested this August, and he had a garage full of terabytes full of material. He hasn't gone on trial yet. I know nothing more about the case, but it seems he just took this information because stealing secrets give you a sense of power against the establishment, and that seems to me as plausible as that he was working for anyone in those days, but he was doing this very much in the open. And because he was doing this in the open, anyone who was looking for a source at the NSA would very well have spotted him. Except you say, well, why didn't the FBI spot him or the NSA? I, I asked uh, someone at the FBI, I, I laughed because it's so ironic. They said, well, we couldn't open a file on him because he's a 
civilian employee. He's an American, and he's working in America. We don't have the right to do surveillance. But of course, any other intelligence service from the Chinese to the Russians do. So I believe in Hawaii, I, I wouldn't do this, with, but say I'm totally confident. But my feeling from everything I learned there, from speaking to people that didn't know him well but knew his girlfriend, that he was probably a, a dupe, a very motivated, I would say, he was what he said he was. All right. So, as you know, the book has been uh, criticized by Charlie Savage of the New York Times, uh, Nick Lehman, uh, and Bart Gelman, uh, who is, of course, a, a figure in the book to some degree, um, who all in different ways sort of accuse you of um, uh, of thinking about what could be true um, and thinking through uh, inferentially what's possible rather than sticking to facts that you can actually demonstrate and, and, and prove. Um, they use different examples of this, but it's a common theme of the criticism. So, and, and all three of them, I, I, except maybe Gelman, I'm not sure, uh, come back to uh, your uh, references to and relationship with, uh, with Angleton as the sort of urtext of this inferential style of reporting. So I want to ask you two questions. The first is, how do you respond to the criticism? I'm, I'm, not, I'm much less interested in, in specific factual disputes uh, about you know, specific claims. Uh, readers, uh, listeners, and, and people can go to the text for, for those disputes. But how do you respond to the sort of general criticism that you kind of imagined, imagined a world that could be true uh, and the right thing to have done was to report facts that you could actually collect and that this has something to do with James Jesus Angleton? Well, the people you mentioned, at least Savage and Gelman, both received documents that they used for books. And, and in Gelman's case, it's uh, the principal his part career. of his career at okay. this point. So they are somewhat wedded to this. But I think it goes beyond. I don't want to do an ad hominem attack and say they're biased. I think journalism has so wedded itself to what I think is a scandal to one source that they have never bothered to verify or check. They can certainly verify when it's passport, for example. That now, when, I'm thinking of the book, When Prophecy Fails, when they find out that prophecy's wrong, they continue to proselytize. And I think part of this is to admit that I'm right about anything, and I'm gonna to get to the inferential and Angleton, don't worry, that I'm right about anything means that they're wrong about everything, and they should go back and report this as a story. Um, inferential? I don't know. It's not inferential that Putin said that he met with uh, Russian diplomats. He didn't say that. What did he say? He said he contacted. He contacted. Okay. Yeah, that's it's, different. No, it's, it's different. You're right. I, I, you're right. It's an important. So it's not an uh, inference that Putin said that he contacted uh, Russian diplomats in Hong Kong, okay? It's not, that's not an inference. Drawing an inference from that 
that, uh, that therefore Russia was in contact with him, you know, is, is you draw, that's what we do. We draw inferences from facts. The, um, it's not a inference that the uh, U.S. intelligence says that he's in contact with Russian uh, intelligence, although it might be an innocent form of contact. They don't, it's not uh, an inference to say that his passport was uh, revoked on uh, June 22nd. When I try to report facts like that, they go crazy. Hey, hey, uh, sir, sir, yeah. sir, sir. How long sir. do you think the time difference is? I think it's 13 hours. It's 12 hours in June. But the State Department did inform him, according to this, inform the Hong Kong authorities. I mean, you know, if they did it at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it would still be on the 23rd. It was a weekend. Excuse me, sir. It was a weekend. Um, there's a, actually a process here. Um, no at, questions? No. no. That's oh, actually the process. Fine, okay? Fine. But I, I don't, I, I mean, it's good you point these things out. I think, oh, I, think so I don't mind. But, uh, but here's the interesting thing. There's a difference between speculation and a difference between basically trying to look at what actually happened. When we started this discussion, I said, well, he was an intelligence worker. He um, said that he had basically gone, changed jobs to get access to documents having sources and methods. He um, went to Russia. Those, you know, we know he's in Russia. You can look at Gelman, you know, even if you read Bart Gelman's early reports, his earliest report, I should say, he says that one of the things Snowden asked him to do was put in a piece of code or uh, a, a cipher or some, something, I don't know, into his, uh, into his Washington Post story on the website to help him with a foreign embassy. Now, Gelman might think that embassy is Iceland, and I don't know, it's not. But these are all, you know, these aren't to take and try to assemble and say, what does all this mean, isn't basically uh, just simply saying, well, he could have done this or he could have done that. He is in Russia. He is under the protection of the Russian government. He flew on a Russian plane. Uh, he uh, went to Hong Kong for some reason. Maybe, maybe he didn't go for some, I'll take that one back. But we know he went to Hong Kong, and we know he engaged in a disclosure operation in Hong Kong. Can I get on to Angleton? Yeah, yeah okay. and, and, and so what does all this have to do with Angleton? Okay. I have to admit, Jim Angleton was an important influence in my life. If you, it started 1975, when I was, the Reader's Digest came to me to do a book on Lee Harvey Oswald. I wasn't interested, and they said, but we could, we have his KGB agent, Yuri Nasenko. So I accepted this, and then someone told me, but you have to speak to Jim Angleton. From that time on, I had many, many conversations with Angleton. Uh, he was an extraordinary intellect. Now, what an intellect does 
is a little what you, like you described, Ben, takes a few facts and tries to draw. A, that is what intellectual activity and tries to draw a more general picture from facts. And, you know, uh, clearly Angleton went off the track at a few points, like saying that there was no split between China and Russia, or Soviet Union and Russia, which was wrong. And he was right on a few things. There were moles in the CIA. I spoke to their case officers. I mean, Hansen, Ames, Nicholson. They, you know, he was right on some things. He was wrong on some things. But he influenced the way that I approached problems. And so, you know, I tried to look and say, state secrets are missing. The guy who took them has gone to an adversary nation. These have done tremendous damage to American intelligence, even if the Russians didn't get them, because he compromised all these secrets, which meant they all had to, they had to find new systems, new methods, new sources, which they can do. Intelligence does that. Okay, so I want to close with, with a question that may seem bizarre, but I want to justify it. Nothing's bizarre in this case. And the question is, why is this story important? The reason I'm asking is that everything you just said, we absolutely know to be true. The secrets are missing. He's in Russia. The, the, the agency has to act as though they're compromised, uh, even if they're not. Um, and it has had very substantial consequences. So my question is, the difference between you and Bart Gelman is a huge array, of, you know, gulf about a whole lot of factual questions about who Snowden was and what precisely he did. But at the end of the day, Bart wouldn't disagree with those facts. And so my question is, does it really matter if he was a Russian spy or a whistleblower? Or uh, is the damage the same either way? Why does it matter? In this last election, a great deal of attention was paid to the findings of our intelligence community that Russia was hacking, and this was directed by the Kremlin. And, you know, you have to ask, why has Russia the rise, why has it, Russia increased the amount of uh, our aggressive intrusions in cyberspace. It is not unrelated to what Snowden did because, as Ben put it better than I could, when you do damage, when, rightly or wrongly, when this, in 2013, when our intelligence systems were compromised and sources and methods had to be suspended until they were determined whether they were actually compromised or not, it created space. Imagine at a shopping mall, if suddenly a short circuit turned out all the surveillance cameras and all the uh, electronic uh, tag checkers and everything else, shoplifters would have a field day. I think the damage, I'm not going to say he's a shoplifter, the damage Snowden did 
by simply taking the information, whether he was a whistleblower, whether he was an agent, or whether, as I believe, he was a whistleblower who became maybe reluctantly an agent, whatever it happened, what we're seeing today has to do with the loss of our intelligence. And that's what my book is really about, the theft of intelligence. It's not really about Snowden. I don't really even care that much about Snowden. Now, with Gelman, Poitras, Savage, Greenwald, they are committed to another idea, a very important idea, and that is that surveillance is a violation of privacy. I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure Savage is committed to that idea, but I agree with you as to the other. Well, his book, I think, uh, okay, uh, I will give you that, okay. Now, I agree with Snowden, and I agree with them, that we live in a surveillance state. Google records all our searches, our, reads our Gmails, Facebook, the business model, we call it social media, but it's really a, a surveillance machine. Basically, it sees who we're friends with, what we do, and it tries to sell it to advertisers. Twitter, how many followers do you have? Followers? I'm not being paranoid, but that's surveillance. So we live in a complete surveillance society, which is going to get worse, not better. Part of the surveillance is done by the government, and the part of the surveillance that's done by private organizations could be obtained by a subpoena or a warrant, or even a court-supervised order. So. I think that the concern here, the libertarian concern, is we have to protect privacy. But in protecting, in acting to protect privacy, they don't really care, and I'm not sure I know too much about, what is really going on in the invisible intelligence war post-Cold War. If we were in a hot war, everyone in this room would agree that you can't take secrets and uh, go over to an adversary country, okay, if, if it was World War II. No, no there wouldn't be, uh, not only this room, but I could appear with Bart Gelman and Laura Poitras, they would all agree. But now we don't know what's happened because the Cold War's ended. We don't even know um, if there is a war going on. We don't know what the value of, of intelligence is, except in one area, and that is terrorism. The NSA actually had a fairly good program in conjunction with the FBI and CIA called PRISM or 702, where they had a couple, three or 4,000 targets, in, mainly in Pakistan and Afghanistan, Iraq maybe. And when these targets, some of whom were bomb makers, it was not Al-Qaeda, was it, was it no ISIS? When they contacted someone in America, they kept tracking the contact chain which, of course, was violating the NSA's charter. And, and, you know, Jack Goldsmith was one of the people who went against truth to power. He basically said to uh, George Bush, you've got to stop this. And he said, so did uh, Jim Comey and so did Ashcroft. So, you know, this is all 2003. We're back in ancient history. But the program continued to... Congress passed a, a bill making it legal, uh, an amendment to the Patriot Act. And so we were able to track when a bomb maker called Rahul in Pakistan uh, was contacted by an American, Afghan-American 
Kozivi in Aurora, Aurora, Colorado, they began tracking Zivi's um, communications. Uh, pretty soon they found he was planning to bomb Grand Central Station and Penn Station, where I'm going tomorrow night, and blow them up in 2009. And of course they shared this information with the FBI and he was arrested. Okay, we can argue that his privacy rights were violated, but we have to accept that we don't have any privacy at all anymore. So what difference does it really make that his rights are violated and, and you know, thousands of people are saved in Penn Station or Grand Central Station, he was going to bomb them both. So I, I think, you know, that I do disagree with the, uh, let's say, civil liberties focus, which, you know, I think Snowden at least began part of it. I just think that, uh, that you know, privacy is a conceit in these days and that we, we are losing our privacy and we have to trust our government. Maybe not this government, but we have to trust, we have to basically trust some institutions, the courts, the courts that supervise uh, the intelligence services. And yes, there's runaway bureaucracies, I have to admit that. And Snowden did a lot of good by exposing some of the runaway bureaucracies at the NSA. Edward Epstein, thank you very much for joining us. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.